0: HD Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast.
1: Hi, I'm Satya Santanam from Mint's Personal Finance Team. Welcome to Why Not Mint Money Podcast. Listeners, have you heard the term family office? Let me tell you. Take an ultra-high net worth individual. She or he must be having a lot of money and a lot of problems that comes with managing it. A family office is an entity created by high net worth individuals to manage their money related matters including investments, succession, taxation and legal aspects. I was going through an Ernst & Eng report on family offices in India. It said that the spate of initial public offerings and acquisitions in the last few years created a new category of first generation ultra high net worth individuals in India. That's nice right? And guess what, they are also proactively exploring the family office route to manage their wealth, it seems. Who doesn't want to know where they are investing and what money means to them? At Mins Mutual Funds Conclave 2022, a panel on family offices discussed the same thing about how ultra-high net worth individuals are allocating their money. Amrita Farwahan, MD & CEO Wealth Management, Ambit Private Limited, Munish Randev, Founder and CEO at Servin Family Office. Nikhil Chanda, Managing Director and Head Investments Family Office at JM Financial Limited. And Nishant Agarwal, Senior Managing Partner and Head of Family Office, ASK Private Wealth, shared fresh insights into the world that is less accessible to us. Listen in.
2: Hi, welcome to Why Not Mint Money a personal finance podcast where we help you understand basic money concepts and share strategies for you to build your wealth. So let's get started on your money journey.
1: This is almost the time when I shut off the work and uh, start watching something on uh, Amazon Prime or Netflix. So the recent uh, you know, uh, series that I'm watching is All or Nothing. How many of you have watched it? It's a sports documentary series. So this is about a uh, uh, football fo- uh, sports documentary sp- uh, series it covers one professional club in each season so the episode that i'm talking about is the arsenal football club and i'm going to recall the words said by the the coach football coach of arsenal club in one of the interviews i'm reading the exact dialogues here So it's the coach Michael Atati says, one famous Spanish coach said that players are numbers. But I cannot treat players like numbers. For me, they are people. I need to understand them emotionally, what happens in their lives, for me to coach them well. So why am I talking about this now? It's because all of the speakers here today, ultra-high-net-worth individuals with big investment numbers and all. But I'm sure it's not just numbers for you. It's about understanding them. So, from you, I want to understand today, you know, what are the motivations of these ultra-rich people with respect to investing their money? Anybody can start.
0: Should
3: I start? Yeah. <laughs> all right. The lady can...
0: It's, you know, actually... Um, Uh, For uh, When you achieve so much success, right, that um, you create a lot of wealth for yourself, I think that one of the key motivations that come is how you can give back what you have gained. So, especially the first generation entrepreneurs, you know, you see a lot of that, that look, you know, I have succeeded, I have excelled at what I do, now how can I make my money work for others like me, or how can I give back? I think that's one. Uh, second is that, you know, success always has to be celebrated. And you do s- want to, you know, in- spend your money also into things that you're passionate about. So there's a lot of collection that happens with your wealth, right? And uh, so that's on the fun side of things. But when it comes to the serious matter of preserving your wealth, I think the most important thing is like, you know, what do you want that money to meet uh, mean for your family? And how do you want it to get extended to the next generations? And what kind of values you want to give with it, uh, right? And you want to preserve the hard work that you have done. You want to make sure that the wealth you have created lasts long, uh, you know? So how it's invested, preserving it, ensuring that it beats inflation rates, but it also creates opportunities for your next generation, I think is uh, very important for people who create wealth. Interesting, interesting. I think
4: one more aspect is, uh, you know, the world is very different now. And it's not a cliche, but if you see, uh, you know, investments are no more simple. Uh, You know, it's a complicated world. Things change pretty fast. Technology changes very fast. So the world is very dynamic. So gone are the days where, you know, uh, a a promoter or or a patriarch can manage an amount of, uh, you know, wealth. Uh, which is a reasonable chunk of wealth on his own, because you do need a specialized team to manage the complexities the way the world is in today. Plus, you have several options where you can invest your money. So in that background, I think what happens is, the promoter feels a lot more confident that if he has his own team, which he, which he, you know, invests in, and that's a dedicated team for that promoter, his wealth will be taken, you know, care of in a much more better manner then what it would be if he would be just managing by himself.
1: Um, You know, Mr. Nikhil, he's managing the wealth of JM Financial. So, Munish was joking around that he's the investment manager for the investment manager. (laughs) So, yeah. Munish, you want to add anything? It's not easy. (laughs)
3: Sure. (laughs) No, I think uh, when you asked about how uh, larger ultra high net worth families uh, manage their wealth, I can tell you uh, the basis of investments don't change for large investors. It is that their complexity and the problems they face are very different. I mean, you don't realize this, but families go through, once they have made money from their businesses, you know, they go through challenges of safeguarding it, safeguarding it not for just returns, but for other things as well. Uh, Also making it sure that it is uh, the succession plan for that wealth is clear and clarified for the next generation. And also thirdly, very importantly, uh, it is also growing and beating a sort of a lifestyle integration for the family. So actually, the number of problems are massive. It is just not about getting a return, but how to structure the wealth, how should hold the wealth, how to, uh, you know, give the wealth to the next generation, and in the meanwhile also generate enough money so that the lifestyle inflation is taken care of. Uh, and I, I usually say, you know, there's a combination of uh, wealth preservation, wealth management, and wealth creation. So their their problem set is pretty large. It's not that easy for them as compared to maybe a smaller Can side Can you tell investor. us one problem? So I think the biggest problem is that if some families generally think of is that tomorrow what if my business goes kaput i have god forbid an ed rate; everything gets stuck and i don't have nothing to do or my business suddenly gets disrupted and my next gen suddenly stays at a situation where you know they may not be able to get the same lifestyle as what the parents had so what do you do have i created enough preservation pool for my family that if something happens to the business the family can still live with the same lifestyle for the next five six seven eight years at least till the time the family can you know get some Uh, footing on the ground and diagrammatically opposite if you don't grow your wealth, if you don't create wealth Yes, everybody is used to a certain lifestyle But when you go from a second generation to a third generation or a fourth generation by fourth generation, you have almost like 30 cousins in the family who are owning shares in the company. So how do you, you know, and when the wealth gets bifurcated you know everybody's getting a small lot, but it's all stuck in the company shares. So how do you manage wealth? Which is liquid, non-liquid? That's a big question. How do you preserve some wealth for the future? And in the meantime, making sure a major part of your wealth is at least beating inflation. That's the, so there are many diverse challenges that you have. And
1: within one family office, there could be so many portfolios, right?
3: Oh, yes. Uh, so when we say a family office, it doesn't mean one pool of capital you're managing. You're managing actually, uh, so let me take a step back. You're just not managing money. You're managing people's expectations family dynamics, how different generations talk to each other, how they, their expectation and wishes. So one is that they may be, you know, sometimes we have handled 17, 18 different pools of capital inside the same family office because everybody wanted to have a very different approach on risk return. On the other hand, you have one central karta-oriented, one pool of capital mandated, but the generations were not happy. So it all depends on the complexity of family dynamics, which defines the complexity of the investment portfolio as well.
1: Sure, sure. Nishant, do you want to add anything? Uh, about sure. I would say
2: wealth and estate created during a lifetime is, is a very unique and a very personalized approach for various owners of wealth. There is no one-size-fits-all kind of a solution. It depends on the, on the family background, the life stage of that particular patriarch, and then they can take various approach towards managing it. Right, One which we normally talk about is about preservation of wealth, but lately, With the first generation wealth being created in India in the last four or five years, thanks to e-commerce and startups and everything, I don't think preservation comes first in their mind. These are risk takers, these are entrepreneurs. They want to move from one step in the journey to the second and the third and the fourth step. So there the objective comes in terms of creating something bigger or having a second round of uh, take on whether it is entrepreneur system or whether it is company and wealth creation. Sometimes, uh, the family heads want to look at his next generation and see, apart from wealth, how will I keep them involved? So, even after having a lot of wealth, it's about seeding new ideas, creating new businesses, having family members involved in the business. Because beyond a particular size, I don't think there is a shortage of money to meet the goals or meet the lifestyle expenses. Then it's about something beyond in terms of creating bigger legacies, contributing back to societies or creating institutions and businesses much bigger than what I have originally created. So we have seen a whole mix of objectives and approach, one where it goes back to business, one where it goes back to philanthropy and society, and one in which if it's a fairly tight, strong nuclear family, you look at preservation, transfer, and then growth, uh, the next generation of that wealth. So different families, different objectives.
0: Sure, you want to add something? You like know, I, I was just hearing what Nishant said and to the question around what are the problems that somebody who has everything faces, you know, uh, it's a problem of too many that if you have everything, how do you motivate your next generation to do anything? I think it may be anecdotal and it's not research-based, but there is that trend to say that, you know, what kind of economic value can the next generation also add and how do you motivate them? That's a counterintuitive problem uh, that families that have a lot of money but may have sold their businesses right? And have to rethink about how their family is going to create value. Uh, you know, what do you do with the next gen? How do you motivate them? This they is really everything. interesting. Yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. So what is the, typically in India, what is the minimum net worth uh, when somebody invest, you know, start, set up a family office that could actually work in favor to them in terms of cost-benefit analysis?
4: Uh, so, uh, I mean, if you can take that, you know, if you see globally uh, You know, the family, I mean, you know, there's some statistics which are there where globally family offices now manage in excess of 6 trillion, you know, US dollars. And the family office concept obviously is is more Western and is now gaining ground in India over the last, uh, you know, 8 to 10 years. If you see globally, there is a threshold which people ballparkly take is about, you know, 100 million dollar number, which basically is meaty enough to actually run your own independent family office. Now, obviously, in the Indian context, that is a very large amount. And, you know, there will be few which will cross the 800,000 crore kind of a band. But I would say in an Indian context, uh, you know, even a, even a number of, for example, 250 crores is something which, you know, you would look to uh, convert it into a single family office. That's an amount where you will be uh, able to invest in your own team, which is very important. Because finally, it's the team which is the custodian of your wealth. You need a team who you can really trust and uh, rely upon. So, one, with that kind of a corpus, you can invest in your team. And second, with that kind of a corpus, you have access to a lot of uh, investment opportunities. Because, you know, uh, the, uh, the the people who are wanting to raise funds, they also have certain thresholds in mind. I think that's a very pakish number which I can think of as something like a 250 crore number.
2: I understand. I think before we come to the Question on cost to set up your own family office. I think a precursor to that should be on what do you expect your family office to do or what your requirements are. You know, honestly, there can be two answers for it. is a mean, straight answer in terms of what should be your size of portfolio and what kind of team and cost it requires to service and manage them year on year. The answer to that is not very different from what um, was just mentioned, around 500 crores and at even half a percent, you'll have around whatever, two and a half crores of annual cost. Think of a family office as a mini fund. If you you get one good equity specialist, one good private equity analyst, one debt expert, a couple of accounts and operations guy, to set up a team of four or five people working exclusively for you in today's day and cost would easily cost two to two and a half, three crores rupees in salary. Add a couple of incidental expenses about office, travel, meeting and all other running expenses, it's easily 2x. So I would think... To run a really proficient family office, you will have a give or take half a million to a one million dollar kind of a running operating cost, which can be justified only if you have a hundred million kind of a family office. That doesn't mean if somebody doesn't have a hundred million family office, he's left for spending himself, because then there comes a second layer of family office professionals called multi family office. Now, those are like outsourcing, in source versus outsource debate, where you can use a collective services. Catering to many clients like yourself, and then this cost get distributed. So both options are available, okay. and uh, depends on your needs and requirements, you can choose one of the
1: two. Munish, you run a multi-family office structure. Uh, understand, family offices is not just about investments. So how is your time distributed between investment, you know, and other you know services that you have to provide for the family, you know, that you are catering to?
3: Sure. So uh, the Uh, The functions of a family office, as I said, most people know it for investments, as you rightly said, but there are other functions like family uh, governance, there is uh, wealth structuring, there is global structuring, different families are staying in different geographies, you do all that stuff. Uh, It depends on family to family where, what your time will be spent. There are some families who just want to focus on purely investments for their family office. That means 100% of your time is just in predominantly investment, a little bit on wealth structuring. But there are families who are predominantly focused on getting the governance in place for the next generation. Uh, They don't have maybe large financial assets because you have families in India who have got large real estate assets, which are not liquid. They may be sitting on a billion dollar of real estate, but they have maybe fifty, hundred crores of financial assets. For them, you're spending almost 80, 90 percent of the time in doing the family governance part of it. So it's very unique to a family. Uh, The the requirement is very unique. And as uh, Nishant was saying, the expectations from the family office have to be clearly defined. And similarly, when somebody works with a multifamily office, the scope of services that we have, and we have no other business. We only do family office right. advisory. We have no other uh, line of revenue. You know, the time spent in understanding what the family needs then decides how much time the team will be spending, who will be spending more time in the team. But on a journal, if I just average out the number of families that we work with, I think 70% of the time will be still in investments on a broader level. Sure, sure.
1: Amrita, you handle more than 2500 ultra high net worth individuals, that's a big number by the way. So, um, where do they invest, you know, what are the asset classes that they invest in?
0: Um, so, um, over the last decade or so, right, the process of investing has gotten fairly serious, right, for most of the families and. Uh, also if you look at the opportunities available in India from an investment perspective, they have expanded substantially. So you have family offices that generally would, you know, look at in the early days fixed income and equities, but that has now expanded to say what are the other alternates that are available and all of these things are cyclical. So at times there is one asset class that is doing well so there is overall a higher focus on that particular asset class. But I would think if You can't generalize because a lot of it depends on what the family office is, it depends on the size of the family office, it also depends to a large extent on where the family has derived its income. So, for example, at least we've noticed that if the income has come out of, let's say, technology and digital, or these are tech billionaires, you will find that a large part of their wealth actually goes back into alternates and private markets. A large significant sometimes more than 50 60 70 percent but those are mostly outliers and they're very specific to this segment mm. but on an average right our uh, families invest across the 50 50 balanced portfolio is generally for an average family office the way to go and within that depending on their understanding and depending on their interest they look at dividing their assets across equities public markets, which has in India been the largest allocation, and we are seeing a trend of family offices reverting back to the stride and tested market. Uh, they would invest in alternates, and alternates would include things like private markets. It would include not just you know early stage digital, because for many of us, startups are the only thing in alternates, but alternates are in private markets, but could include very large uh, unlisted companies. Right, So there's a fair amount of allocation there, over the last two, three years, and family offices are fairly forward-looking, right? So you're looking at what's going to work in the next five, seven years, not necessarily what has worked in the past. Uh, over the last two, three years, we are seeing a fair amount of interest in infrastructure in India. So investing in vehicles that allow you to participate in that growth story, like INVITs, like REITs, sure. there's interest there. Uh, there is also, uh, you know, credit uh, is is something where you can get reasonable returns, almost in comparison to public markets. So investing in performing credits, investing in asset reconstruction. So we find that most family offices are fairly open to explore multiple asset classes and to take a very thought-through decision on how much to allocate to it. Do they invest in crypto? Uh, So I think it's a very next-gen phenomena, right? A lot of the uh, younger, you know, uh, folks may want to may have dabbled in crypto uh, but i think the way regulations are in india and you know just like enough information of this asset class is not out there so it's not a significant asset class uh, but i think most young people in a family office would have dabbled in it
1: nishant uh, you know it's it's generally understood that um, high net worth individuals they want to preserve their capital then to you know something else so um does that translate to a very conservative portfolio?
2: Quite contrary, actually. Just to kind of add to the previous question also which you asked, I can, I can say over the last more than two decades of my experience of working with HNI families, there are a couple of very clear trends and points which have emerged. First and most important to me is this whole affinity toward direct real estate is slowly and steadily diminishing. The whole love for owning residential, commercial, buildings is definitely coming down um, because of formalization of economy and these asset class also not giving those super normal uh, patchy returns. So that's one trend. Second trend I'm also seeing is openness to explore outside India. So 10 years back, there was hardly any options or inclination for people to go and invest uh, outside India and they were very, very home country biased investing style. But and a recent phenomena I would say less than a decade last seven or eight years is this openness for taking risk through startups, tech, VCs and alternate space a lot. So these are three very good terms and if I have to imbibe them all together into one framework, I think a lot more institutional way of formal investing evolving in family head's mind than a very ad hoc approach to investing. Whenever you have liquidity, you meet five people, you like idea, you add. And after many years, you realize that some of the past do not add to the picture which you originally envisaged. So now there is a framework, there is a little more institutional, formal way of looking at investing. Risk is again, very, very dependent on families. We'll have clients who will have 50-60% of money in tax-free bonds uh, or locked up into a foundation for charitable purpose and then like Amrita said, there could be people who have made money in tech and then wants to go back in tech and invest 50-60% back in tech as well. So it's a pretty wide spectrum that is. I understand.
1: Munish, uh, you know, uh, let's focus on the private private market investments. So as per the EUI report as on December 2021, over 40% family offices have doubled their allocation to private markets in past five years. So what's causing this increased interest? What are the kind of risk-adjusted returns one can expect from these uh, private markets?
3: So, true. Uh, I think the allocations to private markets is increasing and they are predominantly, broadly, two or three reasons. I think one, uh, naturally when the next gen is coming in, you know, who's educated abroad, they've seen what happens in the valley, they understand the whole innovation ecosystem. I think they add their flavor when they come become active in the family office space, their own family office space. That is one. Secondly, I think uh, India inherently is a very entrepreneurial mindset market. So, we had, uh, you know, government employees and entrepreneurs. You know, private uh, service wasn't that a large uh, part of the population. So uh, some people like their paychecks and some people were doing businesses. So I think the innovation uh, which started off maybe 10-15 years back in India and there's, there is educated uh, you know uh, people who are launching these uh, ideas and also the families are seeing that many of the sectors are getting disrupted. So many sectors getting disrupted, many mainline sectors getting disrupted by the startup community and the kind of funding which has come in, it has become more mature. I think that Gave them a lot of a comfort in the initial stages. And lastly, and I say that for all new share classes, if you can't discuss the latest product in your social gathering, you're missing out on something. So the FOMO has also brought in a lot of people as well. Uh, but inherently, uh, venture capital or private markets, private debt and structured debt, it's a very much matured market as compared to five years back. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a good space. They are increasing and we haven't seen the tip of the iceberg as yet.
0: I think just to add to what Manish said, uh, they are investors. They want to see returns. They want to see their money back. So one of the biggest problems in private markets over the last 10, 15 years has been exits in India. How will you exit your investment? And 2021 or, you know, during the pandemic... The market matured and you started seeing exits. We had 16 billion dollars worth of exits which were either through public markets or secondaries. And I think that when you have visibility, that A, yes, I'm taking a call and I'm investing into something that is impacting my life, right? Whether it's changing my behavior, whether how I travel, how I'm shopping, whatever I'm doing, but I can also see exits that really matures the market and that's what's caused a lot of the family offices to say, hey, this is a viable proposition. I have a very high chance of making a decent return over a 7, 10-year time frame and hence uh, allocations have increased.
3: If I can just add sure, one thing. Sure. Uh, you know, in the venture capital mutual fund space, uh, we haven't seen multiple full exits of the fund till now. So funds started off maybe 10 years back, have extended, have got extensions, and now we are seeing so it from that fund.
1: No. So,
3: uh, yeah, I missed out that part of the question. So, the return expectation you can't see wasting track record. I mean, US, yes, we have numbers for 30 years, 35 years. We can look at each vintage, what was each vintage kind of returns, how did it compare to the listed market. But in India, you can't. So, right now, I think you are gunning for an expected market. So, basically, look at the underlying investments in, say, the venture capital space or the private debt or the structured debt space and say, okay, the fund should give you this much of a return. Debt products are obviously much shorter, so you can predict, and we have seen many cycles of debt products, uh, you know, exiting. But I think the VC space, people are now realizing, obviously IPO is not the only way. After IPO, everything is not gaga. But I think very importantly, uh, once these funds start giving their money back, and now funds are realizing the importance of giving that money back, and maybe taking that money again in the next fund, I think that mindset change, which I was also, I think, touching upon, is
4: changing.
1: Sure, sure. Nikhil, uh, yeah.
4: you know. You know, I had a slightly different view on this also. So, there is no doubt that uh, private markets, venture capital, etc. Is, is booming. And, you know, it's the way of life, right? You've seen the world around you changing. And you don't want to get disrupted. So, you be, be a part of the disruption and you invest in these companies. But to my mind, the way I think is, uh, you know, there are three, three, legs of the tripod, you know, one is risk, the second is return, and the third is liquidity. So you know, when you're taking an investment decision, these are the three parameters which you are in general, you know, evaluating the risk of the of the investment, the return potential of the investment and the liquidity of the investment. And you know, whether it's public market or private market, there is different, you know, uh, you know, you can rank them on different scales. To my mind, uh, you know, it is very difficult to substitute public markets, uh, you know, in a big way for, for uh, you know, family offices. For the simple reason, you know, uh, India is, has the, amongst the highest number of listed companies in the world. You know, on the Bombay Stock Exchange today, you have more than 5000 companies. I think even on the Nasdaq, you have something like 3800 companies listed. I'm not saying 5000 companies are investable. But even if you, you know, carve out a percentage of it, you know, 1%, 2% of those 5000 companies, you've got a long a list of companies which are very, very investable. The breadth of the market is so much better. The kind of companies and industries which have now represented on the stock market, you know, whether it's startups, whether it's technology, whether it's consumer and so on, and so forth. There's a lot of new age listings which have happened. And the best part is they give you steady compounding in a risk adjusted manner. So, you know, and your liquidity is there. So it is very difficult to displace listed equities to my mind as, you know, that has to be a dominant part of your portfolio. And of course, you add in uh, venture capital and private equity, you know, to it.
1: So when you're managing your portfolio, I think uh, the private market is still uh, a very small portion of your entire entire portfolio that you're managing.
4: Without getting into numbers, the way we think about it is we want to be opportunistic, you know, so when we invest in private markets, we are not going out scouting for a private deal, that's not the mandate. If, by the way, we get a private investment in, in our network, see, in a private investment, what is extremely important is to know your circle of competence. You know, if, if I'm being honest, if tomorrow I'm present, you know, a private venture investment in a biotech sector, to be honest, I don't understand the sector. So, you know, while it might be, uh, you know, very fashionable, so to say, that I'm investing in a venture, venture stage, I need to know what my circle of competence is and if I venture out of my circle of competence you know that's where the 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 first uh, leg of the tripod risk really comes in you know do I really understand what I'm really investing in that battle is easier when you are investing in listed companies
1: so you invest directly I mean based on the expertise of your team or is it you invest in the funds or the products that are available
4: in the market so I would say each family office is different Uh, you know Our focus is to try and do it directly, but there could be, you know, know, different options. And there are, you know, pros and cons of each model. When you are trying to do it directly, you have a lot more control over what you are doing, where you are investing. Uh, You could give more importance to certain ESG factors, which, you know, for us, it's become, uh, you know, one of the data points. Uh, No more, is just a data point. It's one of the factors we look at, uh, you know, so so it gives you a lot more control over what you are doing with your money if you are investing directly. Having said that, we also look at a very collaborative approach, so you know, if there are segments for example, as I said, venture stage, uh, where you know, there's a very specialized domain of expertise which is required, we tend to collaborate with a lot of the existing private equity funds and venture funds, people whom we know well over the years, whom we can trust their judgment, uh, you know, over our experience over the years. So it's a mix and match. Preference might be direct, but collaborate where we don't have a circle of
1: competition. Sure, sure. Shant as wealth managers, do you structure any products uh, specifically for ultra-high net worth individuals, either in real estate segment or the private markets uh, segment?
2: So, Structuring of a new product primarily uh, hinges around two things. One, the quantum of money required to invest in that project, and second is the whole sophistication which an investor might have to understand and take that risk to investing in that product. So yes, there will be cases when somebody comes with a very specific need, and will have both the wherewithal in terms of money available, as well as understanding of that particular product, when you will do a very customized product for that. So uh, for example, if somebody can come and say, okay, I've exited from an auto component business, and now I am looking at something in the EV space where I can take an operating role, or I can take a very uh, advisory kind of a role in a new setup in that space, yes, you can reach out to various players and find out opportunities like that.
0: Sure. You want to but. add anything, amrita? No, like, see, like Nishant said, that there are uh, some products where the size minimum, ticket size is larger. Hmm. So, for example, if you want to invest into a private, but uh, listed invit, right, uh, the ticket size, if it starts at 25 crores, then you, it they do get customized for ultra-achronized. So, there are many products where because of the size, or I wouldn't say products, I would say, opportunities where because of the size of the check that you need to put on the table that's higher uh, it automatically gets allocated to family offices understand can so, I add something Yeah, there? sure.
3: so uh, uh, maybe being the only person who doesn't have a, a asset management arm because we are a pure advisor uh, and we have an open architecture platform actually uh, for the last six seven years when you know eight years I've been managing family offices, we have been able to structure products through our partners. And who are our partners? All the mutual funds, all venture capital funds, you know, every investment bank, every wealth manager, which has a product uh, you know, manufacturing capability. And uh, even before invets and reits and all these things came in, there were structures being run uh, for some families where, uh, you know, it's a, it's an ecosystem play. If you've got 10 families who want to pull in money and be, raise a 150, 200 crore, capital SPV for a real estate holding firm it's been happening for the last almost now eight seven eight years so I think structuring is integral as long as it is required it fits in and it's an open architecture structuring so you go to the best manager for that product and say okay I think you are the best person for this can we structure this this happens globally this happens in India Uh, yes minimums are important but I think when you're dealing with larger set of clients um, usually minimum is not an issue with most of them Sure, sure.
1: You're investing in private markets. At what stage do you do they prefer investing? Is it before pre IPO market uh, time, or is at the you know starting stage?
3: Uh, so I think, uh, sadly, so Our, the the, uh, the active part of the Indian market has been the early stage or pre Series A till now because, uh, you know, these are smaller ticket sizes and hence people can invest. Indian funds who were raising Indian capital were obviously not that large, but now you're getting funds of 2000 crores being raised as well. So predominantly early stage became that active uh, ecosystem because you had multiple modes of exits. So if you hold it for five, six, seven years at least at series B, C, D1, D2, D3 or whatever, you will actually find an exit. So I think it became a natural attraction for a lot of clients. but. I think when we start working with the family, we take almost two to three months to plan for the portfolio. Wherein in the private market space, you will even plan which are the sectors who would want to go directly. As as you mentioned that, you know, biotechnology may not be known to you, but there are certain sectors. And as Nishant mentioned about the uh, auto space, uh, the person saying, you know, I want to get something in the EV space. These are, you know, these sectors which are uh, neighbors of the main business of the family. There you can do direct investments, but anything that you don't know, you better go to a fund or co-invest with somebody in the same space. So I think that's the way we approach it. Till now, it has been early stage. But now I think everybody is full-on early stage. Now we're going to the pre-growth stage and above now. I understand.
4: Sure. I think one thing I'll add here is, you know, as he said, co-investing is a, you know, is, is frankly a, you know, much more uh, practical and a measured strategy. Because it's not that you can do everything on your own and if you collaborate with uh, you know smart people and there's no shortage of that in india and you know, overseas you collaborate with some good people you co-invest with them you also uh, you know t- uh, trust their judgment at the same time you do your evaluation i think it's a win-win situation for all and in fact we continue to see many opportunities where you know venture capital funds and private equity funds approach us saying that we would like to have a good name on the cap table your experience your promoters experience in their set of, uh, you know, business would be an added advantage to this startup over the next 5-10 years. So, it would be great if you are also part of the cap table. So, you know, a collaborative approach is, is the best way, you know, to address some of these issues. Yeah, sure. and, you know,
0: just to add, it's also family offices are comfortable when an institution is leading the round of the investment. The price discovery, what valuation, because these are not listed. So somebody has to agree on what price needs to get paid. And there I agree with uh, him that when an institution is leading the round, sets the value, then you come in at that stage to uh, also invest. The other thing, the question you asked about early stage versus growth stage, it's about risk you want to take. The earlier you come in, the higher the risk, right? So the larger sum, we think, on private markets go into large uh, late stage you know whether it is pre-IPO or growth capital there's a larger number of investments in the early stage uh, but the quantum of funds that get in and of course it depends family office to family office but the quantum of funds in the early stage uh, is relatively smaller and our investment thesis for our clients is early stage invest through funds you want exits you want valuations late stage you know go direct understand.
1: Nishant, uh, you know, for someone who is entering uh, at an early stage, what is the time period that's that's locked in for their uh, investments?
2: Well, firstly, yeah, the diversification in angel, private, alternate markets are more important than even public markets. Like everyone very rightly said, there are three ways to invest. You can go pick the deal directly, you can go through a fund. And now a very, very attractive way of investing is also through co-investment or consortium or club. Because please understand um, it's not as easy monitoring a company after you've invested which is there in public markets with research reports available, annual reports available. You can press the button and exit when you want. These private investments will not give you the luxury of those things. You will have limited rights. Your information will be very patchy. Uh, you might get diluted and lose all your rights over time. So it's a very, very high risk investment. First timers should typically start with a fund structure who becomes like a Sarthi or a guide for them to hold their hands in turbulent time and do a diversification benefit. Second, uh, you will have limited amount of capital allocated to alternate space. So you can't kind of risk a big allocation in one or two companies and uh, and then not get the desired results. So you would like to diversify into five, six, or seven investments. So uh, these are the key factors and then how much time you can spend, which should go in mind. But if you invest very early in a company, I would say bare minimum of four to eight year horizon. It's a pretty big window because some companies, the incoming investor would like to give exit to angels and early stage investors. There's a very common trend. You don't want a lot of shareholders sitting on the cap table and then you would clean up once an institution investor comes. If you are lucky, you can get an exit in three, four, five years. But at times, then you will have to kind of hold for much, much longer before the company finds investors who can get you exit. So anywhere, minimum sure. four to five years, maximum can go up to in 10 years uh, sure. in such investing.
1: Nikhil, when it comes to international diversification, what are the global assets that you look at?
4: So, you know, of course, when you go internationally, it's a it's a different ballgame. Uh, you know, one, you need to be very, very sure of your understanding of the markets or the asset classes which you are investing in. Uh, you know, for example, you mentioned about crypto. You know, for, for somebody li- like us, it's an absolute no-go. You know, we wouldn't even think of it you know, the understanding of the concept, the technology, you know, the evolution of the technology so fast. And more importantly, the regulatory, uh, you know, clarity is completely missing, whether it's India or overseas. Uh, in fact, the U.S. as we speak is overhauling its entire regulatory system for crypto as an industry. So, so I would say it's very uh, important that one understands where you are investing in. The mother market for anybody looking outside is the U.S., I think in general Europe or any of the Asian countries is not so much of a of a priority. US is the is the mother market for the world and from innovation perspective from a disclosure perspective from you know transparency perspective from an ease of access management perspective I think US really scores the the highest. What also happens is you are subject to regulatory limits right the the LRS limit is just about 250,000 dollars a year which frankly for family office is a very small amount and uh, unless you have sources of income overseas which is you know income generated overseas it's very difficult for a family office to you know re- remit an amount beyond what is regulatory permissible so there are caps which are there one way to do it uh, to avoid uh, getting into this this regulatory issue is to invest through the mutual funds which are there in india now so you've got several options of etfs and index funds which are Benchmark to the Dow or to the or to the Nasdaq. That's one way of investing and getting access to, uh, you know, some of the overseas investments.
1: Sure, Amrita, uh, you know, what are the global assets that the, the clients that you are dealing with are interested in? So, Especially, you know, is there any interest in the real estate?
0: Are there. So I was coming to that. So the first thing that a family does when they start taking money out is, where do you want a house? And Indians like London, Indians like Dubai, and we like the US. So one of the early investments, I'm not saying it's the first, but the early investment is generally real estate. And it can get done over a period of time uh, because, as he mentioned, there are limits how much money you can take out. Uh, So real estate is one. The other thing I think that a lot of people are interested in is that the kind of companies that exist in, for example, in the US, whether it is companies like Facebook, Apple, you want a piece of that. These are companies that you're using, Right, Uh, so there is interest to say that digital high technology, where there is no replication in India, that becomes an automatic interest. It's not where a large sum of money goes because these markets are complex, and these, uh, uh, you know, you can if you don't understand what you're doing and what prices, uh, valuations you are coming at, you could create significant losses for yourself. Uh, But there is a desire, so if there is a SpaceX that is out as an alternate investment available to family offices. It is something that, you know, gets people interested to say, I want a little bit piece of that. So to our minds, real estate, definitely equity in the US markets, um, fixed income, right, which is just to ensure that you get bonds, sovereign bonds across the world. It's a diversification tool. And because... Even at a
1: very low interest rate.
0: Yeah, so, you know, there are fund structures where there's inbuilt leverage, right? That is what most global markets do in fixed income because they have an arbitrage on the leverage cost and the bond cost, while LRS does not qualify for that. Uh, But it is a sizable part. And also, you know, you are sending money out to get diversification and reduce risk. You are not sending money out to see only growth, right? So you also want to get money out to say, okay, this is the nest egg in case, you know, there is some child in the family that is migrating you're creating a nest egg for them so there's a fair amount of capital preservation and then there is you know uh, whether it is real estate or it is uh, you know what's happening in there are a lot of people who are interested in what's happening in silicon valley can i say funds that are uh, in the private markets that are based in the u.s but the lacuna is it's gap right and the way a family office manages it that it currently they're what they receive is a very product-based approach, right? This is an opportunity, get into this. Whereas what they really need is exactly how they manage their wealth in India, portfolio-based approach. That it has to have an allocation across markets, it has to have an allocation across
2: asset classes. Sure. One thing, if I'll add to these points about a global portfolio as well as real estate, is also an emerging trend to use this LRS limit of sending money abroad to secure some kind of a residency in a foreign jurisdiction. So US, Portugal, Dubai, all of these now run residence schemes where you can become a visa holder or a long-term pass holder, which ensures your children can travel visa-free to some of these locations by making an investment in these geographies. So this is also a trend where migration, you mentioned migration for children, families settling abroad. So some part of this global allocation also comes through forced investments in some of these schemes, which ensures that you get residency, citizenship, long-term stay options in these countries.
1: Sure, sure. Manish, uh, how often do you interact with your uh, clients? Uh, do they really want to know how their portfolio is performing every you know, quarterly or half yearly? Uh, how do you interact with them?
3: So actually, uh, you know, when, when you work as an advisor to a family, you do much more than just investments. You become almost part of their internal setup to that extent. As, and the kind of uh, engagement you have is very, very deep multiple levels. Uh, as far as, uh, you know, performance and everything is concerned, I think that's hygiene item, monthly and all this kind of stuff. But I think our relationship, our engagement with them on multiple other levels is much, much more within a month than talking about investments. But we do certain things which obviously uh, are a bit differentiated. We have a quarterly board meeting with the family, which is talking about only risk, not talking about investments at all. Uh, investments are a monthly affair in case we find any diversion from the our thesis, we present that. But beyond that, and this takes her to multiple topics, even global investing for that part, you have multiple meetings just planning for the what the allocation will be in that part. So it's very deeply engaging and hence uh, a multi-family office uh, wants to be boutique. And because you need to be able to spend time, the CIO needs to know each and every portfolio by heart, not somebody in the team. And as a CEO, I should know the problems of each and every family myself.
1: I understand, will they be perturbed when uh, there is an equity market correction? Uh, because, you know, even a small percentage correction in the market might lead to huge losses.
0: Yeah. See, so how does
3: it react? you can't predict the market. Yes, some people do say they can predict the market. I always ask them, you should have your own family office, but you don't. Uh, since you can't predict the market, I think what we do is how you predict your reaction to the market. That's inbuilt into our planning. So what happens this, what happens this, everything is pre-planned. Plus minus 5-10% here and there doesn't make much of a difference when you're planning for the next 5-7-10 years. So I think it, it, once you coach them, mentor them over a period of time, they may, they would have been spoiled by certain other people, talking about markets, excited and all the stuff. Doesn't help you in the long term. So I think that's another part of our mentoring with that family which we need to do on an ongoing basis. So nobody likes sure. to ask that.
1: Sure. Just last one question from my side. Since you've been dealing with you know ultra-high ultra net worth individuals uh, for a long time, what is that one observation that you have found, uh, you know, from these uh, individuals? May not be about, just about money, but also otherwise. Let's start with uh, Nikhil.
4: I think one observation, if I can say, you know, other than the investment aspect is the, uh, is the trust factor. Uh, you know, as a, as a, you know, family office uh you know, head or, or a person working in a family office. I think what is extremely important is the kind of relationship based on trust which you have with your promoters, with your patriarch. Because you you obviously know a lot more about them than what the, you know, the average man would know. You would know about their finances, their family. Uh, you are in a way a custodian of their wealth. You are in a way a trusted advisor to them. Your you know, your own conduct becomes extremely important and they expect that which is you know obvious uh, you know, conduct the ethical standards which one sets out and the, the trust which is there. So I think it becomes a relationship you know which is summarized in the word trust and if that's broken you know it, it's,
2: it's the end actually. Sure. Nishant. I would say most of these rather all of these clients are extremely extremely smart uh, uh, people and one characteristic or so one observation I've seen is they're highly perceptive or they can really gauge people quite well. Uh, they can read between the lines, they can understand your fears, your emotions, your greed and then they can take decisions based on that. So they're very, very good readers of people and then they cultivate those relationships. Sure. Amrita, they're
0: just people with more money <laughs> you know, that's one thing <laughs> that's I think nice And uh, but one thing if I have to pick up is like passion right like in what they have done and in uh, learning I think that would be one trait of uh, anyone but like definitely you see in this segment that you know to feel like um, because you have the means right that many times money buys you freedom to follow your passion so I think that's one thing that I'd say stands out Sure, yeah, Manish
3: Uh, I think the only thing I can add is they also get hurt, they also bleed blood, there's not much difference, they have fears, they have wishes, they have nightmares, everything, everything gets a bit enlarged once you have a lot of money because it doesn't doesn't affect you, it affects your large family as a whole and I think the one thing which stands out for them is if you are a business owner or an entrepreneur, you are very detail oriented, right? If you actually work with them closely, you will realize they are the most detail oriented people because they've actually built everything from scratch even if you're dealing with the second or third gen. So, I think they're the same. Everything is a bit enlarged on the emotional side, but very detail-oriented, most of them.
1: Sure. Hands. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been really interesting. I hope you all found it interesting. That's all for now in this episode, listeners. If you have any queries or suggestions, you can reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is at Satya satyasuntanam, S-A-T-Y-A-S-O-N- T A N A M, Or you can also write to us at MintMoney at livemint.com Bye bye
0: This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast HD Smartcast